Uh, good morning. Uh, great to see you. Are you excited to start a new sermon series this morning? Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, here, here's the big idea of this series. We've all got questions about life and faith, uh, and we want to talk about them. Um, because here, here's what can sometimes happen in church. Um, sometimes what can happen in church is if you've been around long enough, you kind of know this is what I'm supposed to believe. And so um, even uh, if you're not sure about it, even if you've got some big questions like, oh, that doesn't seem right, what can sometimes happen if you've been long enough around church long enough is you just kind of stuff your questions because you go, I know what I'm supposed to believe. I'm not supposed to ask that question. And um, you just kind of stuff it and ignore it and try to move on with your faith. And um, that might work for a while. Uh, until um, those questions begin to pile up and to pile up and you're starting to sweep more under the rug than you're actually dealing with with Jesus and maybe you mix a little pain in your life and those questions pile up and pile up and pile up to the point where you get to the point where you, you wake up one morning and you say, I don't even know what part of being a Christian I'm holding on to anymore. Um, and, and for some of you, uh, it's not that extreme. Some of you are like, hey, hey man, I, I'm holding on to my Christian faith just fine. Um, but what I would say is if you have big questions about life and faith and, and you've just kind of swept it under the rug and ignored it and not talked to Jesus and people who love him about it, um, I would argue you've moved your faith to the shallow end of the pool. Um, because as we so often say here, God meets us where we're really at. And we're going to put that idea to the test in this series. Uh, we asked you to send in your biggest questions about life and faith. And what we've done is we've taken the top ones. And we're going to take six weeks to just go through one question at a time. We're going to open our Bibles to hear what God has to say about this stuff. Um, and, and look, I, I don't expect that these sermons will be the end of your journey with these questions. I mean, maybe they will be. Maybe the heavens will just part and you'll be like, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. That answers every question I could ever have. Uh, some of you are laughing. Thanks. Now, that means you're with me. This is good because I think um, if you're laughing, you, you've maybe been around long enough to know that, man, when God speaks to us, when God meets us, that often opens up more questions, doesn't it? And so I think what you can expect is if God's going to speak to us through this series, you might actually walk away from these messages with a thousand other questions about, well, what do I do with that? Or what about this? Or how do I apply that? And I just want to say on the front end, that's okay. That's why we have the Q&A Karen talked about. That's why we have gospel communities here so that you can have a group of people to process with. So if you're not plugged into a gospel community, uh, here's a quick plug. Today would be a great day to go to the info desk and to try one out during this series so that you can have some people to process this stuff with. Because we say this also all the time here, the Christian life, it's not a solo project. It's one that we do in community. So this might be a great week to try out a gospel community. But um, I, I say all this on the front end of this series to temper your expectations. Um, if you walk away with more questions, but are in an honest dialogue with God and with other people who love Jesus, I'm going to consider this series a big win. Are you with me? All right. We've got some big questions to cover in this series, and it all starts with this. How do we know we can trust this book? Um, 
I mean, if, you, if you've read, we're going to have real talk in this series. The room just got really tense there. We're, we're going to ask the real questions, okay? Um, and, and, and I would say this, if we're going to have real talk, if you've ever spent any time reading this book, you know that there's some strange things in here, amen? Um, and, and so one of the most popular questions it would ask, it was asked in a few different ways, but it was basically, how can we trust this is the word of God when it says that, or um, to put it in another way, why do we look to a 2,000-year-old book to tell us about the living God and what he wants for our lives today? And so that's the question we're going to be diving into this morning. And um, as we get going, um, I just want to point out that everyone has an epistemological base. Um, wow, I got an mm on that one. I didn't expect that. I know it's a little early for epistemology, except for one of you. Way to go. Uh, let me define that word. Uh, I don't normally like using big words. I just didn't have a better one. Here's what that word means. You can impress someone at a party this week. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. So basically, epistemology is asking, how do you know what's true? Uh, And everybody has some epistemological foundation. In other words, we all have something that we look to to determine truth. Um, For some people, it's personal experiences. Um, For others, uh, maybe it's... um, the scientific method and what you can measure with the five senses and say, okay, this data tells me what's true. Um, For others, maybe if you're a millennial, it might be Google. Like if you're talking to someone, you're like, hang on, I got to fact check you. What's Google say? Um, And and still for others, it might be, uh, uh, it could be um, the wisdom of those who have gone before us and and tradition and experiences of others. Um, And see, for Christians, we value all of these things, even Google, um, but none of those things are foundational for us. For Christians, the foundation of our epistemology, the way we know what's true, the bedrock, is God's written word, the Bible. And um, I, I, we, we got some questions about this. We want to dive into it. And I'm, I'm delighted that you asked because um, it, it, at the end of the day, what Christians have always believed is that this is the source of truth that we measure all other truth claims by. And I think it's important to just, as we begin to ask, why is that? If this is our starting point, shouldn't we question our starting point? Uh, If we're going to open our Bibles every week in this series, shouldn't we ask the question, why are we opening our Bibles at all? And so that's why we put this question first. It was one of the most popular questions, but I think it also is important to kick off this series. What we're going to be considering today is why why do we want to open our Bibles to hear from God? Or, or in other words, why do I start every sermon by saying, if you've got a Bible, grab one? Why do we start that way? And so that's the question we're going to dive into. There's, there's a lot of reasons we could say, for the sake of time, I've got four for you today. And uh, today's going to be unlike most sermons. Um, normally, we, I say, if you've got a Bible, grab it. And we start with the Bible and we work our way through a text each week. Since today's sermon is about why do we do that, we've got some work to do before we even get to the Bible. So I've got four points for you. We're going to get to the Bible on the fourth point, just to temper expectations. So if you're eager and you're like, please just tell me where we're going in the Bible this morning, you can grab your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll get there eventually, but we've got some work to do first. Why would we trust the Bible? Are you ready? All right. Some of you are nervous. That's okay. That's what this series is for. We're going to get it out here. Number one, uh, the manuscript evidence. 
Um, back when I was in college, uh, the news was boring. Does anybody remember this time period of history? <laughs> Some of you are like, man, that was awesome. I totally remember that. There wasn't a lot of rage. It just kind of put me to sleep at night. Uh, so when I was in college, uh, the news was boring. And so um, as I was getting older and I wanted to understand what was going on in the world, I started to watch two guys, uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Because what these guys would do is they would tell you the news, but they would do it in a way that was funny, satirical, engaging, and could hold the attention of a college student. And so back in college, I watched a lot of these guys. It was my primary news source. And don't judge me, because the things we watch today, I'm not sure they're much better, okay? Um, I, I'm watching these, and they're telling—sorry, that, that, some of you, that just got way too tense there. Uh, <laughs> It's okay to laugh in church. Uh, I'm watching these guys. They're telling jokes, but they're telling the news. Um, And and I'll never forget this one interview uh, that Stephen Colbert had um, when I was in college. He brought in a guy named Bart Ehrman. uh, And this dude was sharp as a tech. I mean, brilliant. He came on and you're like, this guy's brain operates on another level than me. And he was talking about his new book. And what he was saying is uh, the whole idea of his book was, well, you know, we have no idea what the biblical authors actually said because we don't actually have the original biblical manuscripts. We don't have the stuff that they were actually writing on. Uh, and, and, and then he, he went so far as to say, and not only do we not have the stuff, but the copies that we have, they're full of disagreements one, with one another to where you actually have more disagreements amongst manuscripts than words in the New Testament. Um, and, and I don't know how you hear that this morning. Um, for me, as a young college student who was already drifting from the faith of my childhood, um, or more realistically, the faith of my grandparents, that rocked my world. And so, so I want to start with the manuscript evidence this morning, because if you haven't heard that, we need to have some real talk this morning. Um, now, what, uh, what Bart didn't tell me uh, on the Stephen Colbert show um, was we actually don't have the original manuscript of any ancient document from antiquity. So some of you can breathe out there. It's not like the Bible's this shady thing we don't have manuscripts for and we have everything else. We don't have the original manuscript because apparently um, uh, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Do you ever hear a guy say that one? Apparently it's true. Apparently it's true because we have no original documents from antiquity. But what we do have is a process uh, for really examining and testing the trustworthiness of any ancient document called bibliographic testing. This is not unique to Christians. This is a scholarly process that you can look up uh, in the discussion guide this week. I've got a very nerdy PDF in there that's got like 40 plus footnotes on there if you want to do this. But I'll give you the spark notes right now. Um, What you'll find if you look at the bibliographic data, what bibliographic data does is it looks at, okay, so how many copies of the manuscript do we have in the original language? And how, how much time has passed from when the document was originally compiled to our oldest manuscript, like how, how far is the time gap from the original to the one that we do have? So how many we, do we have? What's the time gap? And how much do the manuscripts we have agree with one another? And I can tell some of your eyes are glazing over. Stick with me. There's a point in this. Um, because what you'll find if you look at the bibliographic data is that what we have for the Bible stands head and shoulders above any other work from the ancient world. 
Um, and I didn't learn any of this until after I got saved. And, and I, I was like, man, I love Jesus. And, and so then I had to deal with my objections with the Bible and work through them scientifically, rationally, in community. And so I just want to share with you a couple of the nerdy things I found so that you could just, hey, I've got a nerd friend. He told me some things. You can take this, test it, go further if this interests you. But I just want to give you a couple of bibliographic examples so that you can know what I mean when I say the Bible stands head and shoulders above any other ancient work. Um, have you heard of a figure named Julius Caesar? Yeah, a few of you. Um, some of you need to take a history class. Uh, Julius Caesar uh, really kind of shaped the Western world as we know it. Um, and he wrote a very famous work called The Gaelic Wars, uh, describing uh, his uh, conquest that expanded the boundaries of Rome and really his rise to power. And I could nerd out about that because I really like history. Some of you are like, we know, please don't. Okay, uh, so he wrote this. We have uh, 251 copies of that manuscript. Um, 251 in the original language. We don't have the original because we don't have any originals, but we've got 251. And if you ever take a history class at the university level, you will hear this, the content of this book taught is established history. Um, 251 copies. And the time gap we have from the oldest, uh, from the time that Caesar wrote to the oldest one we have is a whopping 950 years. So it's almost a thousand years later is the oldest one that we have. So that's, that's kind of baseline, just for our awareness. Like we all know Julius Caesar. Of course I believe he existed. That's the baseline there. Okay, now let me show you one of the best outside of the Bible uh, maintained works from antiquity. Uh, this would be the Iliad by Homer. Um, did anyone have to read this in high school? Yeah, wow, I could hear the groans up here on that one. Um, okay, so this one we have some more manuscripts for. We've got 1,700, almost 1,800 manuscripts for the Iliad by Homer. And the time gap, it's shorter. It's only 400 years from when Homer wrote to the oldest manuscript we have. And they're still making us read that today. All right, now let me show you the Bible. Um, what we've got for the New and Old Testament here is for the New Testament, you've got 5,838 manuscripts. Uh, and the time gap from when they were being written to the oldest we have is 50 years. Some of you are like, I'm older than that. Yeah, that's the point. It's a, within a lifetime. Some of you are like, I'm twice as old as that. Okay, well, then you win. <laughs> Um, and then the Old Testament, it's embarrassing how much we have. It's more than 42,000. Again, you could read the data if this interests you. Um, the big idea is it's just head and shoulders in terms of manuscripts above any other ancient document. And so if you believe there's a Julius Caesar, um, you're on good solid ground to say, I believe that what I hold in my hands today um, is accurate to the original. Now, the other thing that'll be said is, oh, hold on, wait a second. You've got a lot of manuscripts, but those manuscripts, they've got a lot of errors. Uh, Bart Ehrman will claim that there are more errors than words in the New Testament, which is technically true. Um, but I'll tell you this, if anyone tells you that you can't know what the New Testament says because there's so many disagreements amongst the manuscripts, they're uninformed or lying to you. They're uninformed or lying to you because the vast, vast, vast majority of differences between manuscripts are spelling and grammar difference that have absolutely no impact on the meaning of the text. So it's like one of those neat little parlor tricks. Technically true, has no bearing on reality. Let me share with you an example. Um, if I sent Karen a text, uh, we'll, we'll throw this one up on the screen here. If I sent her a text that said, my dearest wifey, please look at my spelling. For our anniversary tonight, our gospel community is going to watch the girls so we can get some dinner that doesn't involve french fries. 
True story, by the way. Uh, so there's a quick plug for gospel communities. Thank you to our gospel community, particularly Stefan and Joy, who really bared the load on that one. So please dress accordingly, and I'll see you soon. If I sent Karen that text, do you really think her takeaway is going to be, oh my goodness, are we going to eat Bambi for dinner? Because he called me a deer. I'm really nervous for Bambi. Like, if she did, you'd be like, why, why, why would you say that, Karen? Like, no. No one's going to take that away. She's going to say, we're having kale tonight. Which I think she did. I didn't because I eat like a child. I didn't have french fries, though. So, so see, that's the kind of thing that the vast, the vast, the vast, vast, vast majority of differences, because they're like that. Because here's the thing. Apparently, scribes back then could spell about as well as you can and I can today. Some of you are like, I spell great. Okay, well, they could spell about as well as I can or the average person can. And so as they're copying this down, the reason we have so many differences is because we have so many dang manuscripts. If we only had 251, we wouldn't have many differences. But once you account for differences like that that have no bearing on the meaning, even the most skeptical scholar will admit that 95% of our manuscripts are Greek in entirety. So you've got 5% that's maybe up in the air. Some, some scholars, like Christian scholars, will push that number all the way up to 99%. But take the big one, 5%. In that 5%, there is not one significant doctrine that hangs on that 5%. So it's not like you've got um, some manuscripts saying that Jesus is the son of God and others say he's the son of Gary. No, no big doctrines. That one took you a second. Um, no significant doctrines hang in this 5%. This 5% is things like, should Mark have a longer ending than the one we looked at last week? Which, by the way, the answer is no. Ask about in the q and I totally have thoughts on that. The point is, the manuscript evidence we have for the New Testament is head and shoulders above anything we have from the ancient world. And so if you believe there was a Julius Caesar who transformed the ancient world as we know it, you are on far surer ground to say that what I hold in my hands here is faithful to the original text. Now, um, it's one thing to say what you hold in your hand is faithful to the original. That, that alone doesn't do it, though, right? Some of you are like, well, it could be faithful to the original. I'm still not sure about it. Okay, number two. Let's chat historic reliability. Um, one of the ways the Bible has been criticized and kind of beat up in scholarly communities over the years is because the Bible will make reference to um, kings and peoples and places that we have no reference of existing. And so what people say when you go off to college is the Bible's so stupid. How, how can you trust the Bible to tell you what's true if it can't even tell you the truth about history? Again, I heard this one in college. It really messed with me. Um, what they don't tell you is um, give archaeology enough time and they're always catching up with the Bible. So what's happened time and time again is there'll be a new archaeological dig where they uncover something that the Bible said was there all along and the scholarly consensus has to change to catch up to the Bible. Uh, and this has happened so much over the last 150 years is there's a boom in archaeology. I was really into Indiana Jones back in the day. Give me a break on this one. There's been a real boom in the last 150 years. I consider this as a career. Things are booming. And in that boom, the Bible's booming. They found time and time again, oh my goodness, that's really there. Okay, maybe we shouldn't mock the Christians on this one. Oh my goodness, are we agreeing with the Bible? Oh, this is the worst thing ever to where, I, I don't know about you, but for me as someone that's trying to be an honest observer, I look at that and I go, hey, maybe this is a more reliable source of truth than human consensus, maybe. And, and I'm not the only one that thinks that. Um, there's a famous archaeologist from the 20th century um, named Dr. Nelson Gluck. 
Um, This guy was legit. He was a a scholar, professor, archaeologist. He was basically a real-life Indiana Jones. Uh, Made it on the cover of Time magazine. Google this guy. Super cool dude. He and his team uncovered more than 1,500 ancient sites. You can see his work in museums around the world today. This guy's not even a Christian, but listen to what he says about the historic accuracy of the Bible from his vantage point as an expert in archaeology. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Um, What he's saying is not only... Does every dig confirm what's in the Bible? Not only have we never been able to contradict the Bible, but in fact, as I, this non-Christian dude, have started using the Bible as a map telling me where to look, I've made some incredible finds. Um, Now, that might not lead you to trust the Bible about ultimate reality and what it means to love your neighbor and to love God and live a life of flourishing, but it's another data point to say that when the Bible speaks of facts, we probably should be taking it seriously because when the Bible speaks of historical facts, it has an accuracy that is unmatched and has even non-Christians depending upon it. And so I, I think at the least the historic accuracy of this book means you've got to take it seriously regardless of your faith background. Uh, Number three, uh, the internal consistency. Um, I don't don't know if you think about this often, but the Bible is one book. It's really a collection of 66 different books written by more than 40 authors um, over a period of 1,500 years uh, in three different languages across three different continents. And yet, for all of that diversity, what you will find if you read the Bible cover to cover is one continuous, harmonious story about God rescuing and redeeming his broken world through his son Jesus. And, and if you're like, well, that's, that's not what I got from the book, um, Jesus would say you should read the book again. Um, Luke chapter 24, after he raises from the dead, this would be a great post-Easter sermon. Jesus shows up and gives the best sermon ever, starts with Genesis, goes all the way through the end of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible they had at that time, we call it the Old Testament, and he shows them how it was one big story about himself. And and, and here's why that's amazing, because you would be hard-pressed to find two people today who could write their own works that would work together with that kind of harmony. Um... I mean, let me prove it to you. Uh, take, for example, just two governors of two states in the nation. Say California and Florida, just to go for the two coasts, okay? <laughs> and ask the governors of those two states, hey, I want you to write a chapter in a book on COVID. Um, <laughs> do you think that if they each brought their perspective and they wrote their chapter, that that would come together into a harmonious whole? No. And these are two guys. I want you to use your brain and think about these are two guys who have the exact same job at the exact same time, who have a very similar education history, um, who speak the same language, who have so much shared lived experience. And in the Bible, you've got 40 different authors. And some of you are like Democrat and Republican. Okay. In the Bible, you've got kings riding from the palace and peasants riding from the streets. So don't you begin to tell me that that difference can even touch that one. 
writing over 1,500 years in three different languages across three different continents. And yet somehow what we get in the scriptures is a unified whole. See, the fact that this book, somehow all of these authors work together to tell one harmonious story, it shows that the Bible is unlike any other book. Something unique is going on here where all of these people with their diverse backgrounds, their experiences, their preferences in life, their thoughts about flourishing, somehow they work together to tell one harmonious story that Jesus would say, yeah, that one culminates in me, I'm here. And and that means something truly unique is going on with this book. And that brings us to our final point where what we're going to do now is we're going to let one of the authors of Scripture tell us about his experience with this book. So we've talked about manuscript evidence. We've talked about historic reliability. We've talked about internal consistency that's unmatched in any other work. Okay, now, now let's talk experiential evidence. Let's call the apostle Peter to the stand. Um, Peter, uh, who wrote multiple books in the Bible, um, I want him to tell us about his experience with the Bible because he's uniquely qualified to tell us about it since he's one of the authors. Um, This is 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, I'll, I'll read it to you. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to quickly pull three things out of that text, because just shooting you straight, this is where I normally begin the sermon, but don't worry, we're more than halfway there. I want to pull three things out of that text. Let's talk about Peter's credentials real quick. Um, Because if you're new to church, you're like, who is Peter? I don't know Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Um, And not just any one of the 12. He was a part of Jesus' inner circle. So Jesus had these three guys, Peter, James, and John. Um, that I would say they were kind of extra grace required kind of guys. And so Jesus kept an extra eye on them, um, kind of his inner circle mentored these guys, the, the main leaders in the early church, because God loves to use the weak to lead the strong. Anyway, um, what we uh, see in Mark chapter 9, we just went through this series in Mark's gospel, is that Jesus takes his inner circle up onto the mountain uh, where he's transfigured before them, um, where the veil is pulled back uh, and they see Jesus in his eternal divine glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can read the story in Mark chapter 9, the sermon's on the website. It's an incredible moment where these guys are seeing the Shekinah glory shine on a mountain like hasn't been seen since Moses. And, and that's what Peter's recalling when he talks about, hey, hey, we were there on the mountain. He's saying, hey, I've seen some things. 
And I only walked with Jesus for three years. I saw him in his glory. And he's recalling that moment in these verses. And what he says is, um, in that moment is the Shekinah glory of God is radiating from Jesus. The skies are torn open and the voice of God the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And what Peter says is, I was there. I heard God speak audibly from heaven. It was incredible. And, and he's given us, these are his credentials. One of Jesus' disciples walked with Jesus, saw Jesus in his divine glory, heard the Father speak from heaven. And he's given us these credentials, not just to brag. Um, he's given us these credentials so we'll believe him in a minute. You'll see what I mean You'll see what I mean in a minute. Hang on to that. Those are Peter's credentials. Basically, the guy's legit. He's seen some things. Number two, let's talk about Peter's experience with Scripture. He says, not only have I heard the voice of God the Father speak from heaven, but I have actually had the honor of writing Scripture. You may have heard of the letter of 1 Peter. It came out before 2 Peter. And what he says is, I want to tell you about this experience. Because 2 Peter, he's about to die. He's like, I know there's going to become all these questions. i got to get some things out of here before I die. So let me tell you about the process of writing Scripture. What he says is, um, yeah, I, I wrote 1 Peter, but it wasn't ultimately me that was writing. What he says is, I was being carried along by God's Spirit. See, some people will say, this is a human book. Human experiences about God. We believe that they had a real experience with God, but it's just humans writing their thoughts about God. So it's going to be mixed with error because if I were to write you a book about God, I would really do my best, but it would be mixed with error because, hello. And the same for you if you were to write your thoughts about God. And some people think the Bible's that. It's just one dude's opinion about God or 40 different dudes' opinions about God. It's valuable, but it's prone to error. But what Peter says is, no, no. I've written Bible, you haven't your turn to listen to my experience. What he says is, it was not ultimately from me, nor any of the other authors of Scripture. It didn't come from us. We were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I could do a whole sermon on that statement right there. That is a fascinating statement. What I just want to point out is what he's saying is, um, hey, I played a part. My unique personality came out, so my letters aren't as hard to read as Paul's because I'm a simple dude. He'll actually say that later in this letter, like, hey, Paul, in his scriptures, he's very hard to understand. Ask God for help. So what he's saying is like, hey, I was used. God didn't turn my brain off. My unique experiences contributed to what you see in scripture, but it wasn't ultimately my thoughts. I was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the God who made me, saved me, informed me, sovereignly worked through all of those things to bring about his word in the end. That's what you have in scripture. It ain't my word. It'd be plagiarism to claim that this is Peter's word. This is God's word. That's what Peter says after writing the Bible. And look, you're free to disagree with that, but your credentials kind of stink compared to Peter's. I mean, this guy, think about this. Some of you don't know this. Peter was so filled with the Holy Spirit, he raised a dude from the dead. So, so sometimes people will go, ah, oh, well, that's just Peter. He was a really simple first century man. He was, but he was mightily used by God. He has seen some things, and his conclusion is scripture. It's not a human book. This is God's divine word that miraculously uses humans to accomplish it. But at the end of the day, this is God's word. 
And oh, by the way, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, will say the exact same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So what he says is, this is God's word. And that's why, by the way, this thing is so historically reliable and remarkably, remarkably consistent. Because God doesn't get his facts wrong. He's not like you and me and forgets like, wait, Jesus, was there a uh, king of Babylon named Belshazzar? And the spirit's like, ah, I'm not sure. I can't remember. That's you and me. We operate like that. God doesn't have oopsies when he tells us things. God doesn't change. He do, he's not like you and me where he learns and grows and goes, oh my goodness, I need a mulligans on that one. That was a terrible idea. You and I are like that. God's not like that. When he says this, this is God's word, and that's why it's so historically consistent. That's why it has such internal consistency, because though there were 40 different human authors, they were all being carried along by the same spirit who's writing the book. And that leads to number three, Peter's encouragement. So in light of all of that, and I know some of you, your heads are spinning right now. Just hang with me. In light of all of that, what Peter says is having a Bible in your hand is better than hearing the Father speak from heaven. Do you see that in there? Look at, the, look at verse 19 again. I know some of you are like, this is crazy talk. And we have the prophetic word. This is the Bible more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, knowing uh, and, and the morning star rises in your heart. Anyone hear that and go, okay, Peter says he's heard the father speak and that this is better, but I'd rather hear the father speak. Anyone just want to have real talk and say, I'd rather hear the father speak? Okay, a few honest people. Sorry, I, I, some of you, you're not faking it. You're, you're, you're with me. That's fine. But yeah, this is a place it's safe to be honest. I'd rather hear the Father speak. And yet, what Peter says, this, is, this verse changed my life. I, I hope you can hear this. What Peter says is, hey, I've heard the Father speak, and trust me, you want it. You want it. That's why he gave us his credentials earlier, so we would believe him. It's one thing if I tell you it's better to have the Bible than have God audibly speak from heaven. It's very different for a man who walked with Jesus and heard the Father speak from heaven say that. That's Peter's experience. That having a Bible in your hand is better than hearing God speak from heaven. And the reason he says that, he doesn't just expect you to believe it. He says what we have here is more fully confirmed. If you were one of those people that raised your hands, and I just want you to know, in my Christian journey, I've been there, I've raised my hand, and this is the verse that God has really used in my life. I would encourage you to sit with the statement more fully confirmed. He says, what you have in your hands here is more fully confirmed than hearing the voice of the Father speak from heaven. Because see, here's the thing. Lots of people think they have heard from God. Um, I've shared this story before, but I had a, a dear friend in college who had a man come up to her and say, God told me we're supposed to get married. She said, really? Because that's news to me. This guy genuinely believed that God had told him this. This girl genuinely believed he was mistaken. So how do you know who's right? I mean, seriously, how do you know the difference between God and a dumb idea in your head? You know how many cults have been started with, oh, God showed up to me and told me that we can do X, Y, and Z. And it's not just cults. Like, how, how many times in your life um, have you had an idea that you thought God was calling you to, but in hindsight, you look back and go, yeah, no, nah, that wasn't the Lord. Anyone been there? I have. 
Or if you're not a Christian this morning, you're like, God doesn't speak to me. I'm not sure if I believe in God. Uh, okay, here, here's the thing. Um, have you ever had an idea in your head, God or not, that you thought would be a really good idea and then you followed it and it was a really bad idea that hurt you and hurt other people? Yeah, yeah. See, people say, why do people do such evil things in the name of religion? Well, because people are humans and sometimes humans have really stupid ideas that, that they think are gonna be good that hurt a lot of people. And if you're a religious person, sometimes your dumb ideas, you put God's name on it. And that's why people do stupid things in the name of religion. It's the same thing people do stupid things in the name of irreligion. Because humans, we have, we're, we're a mixed bag. We have our good days, we have our bad days. And what Peter says is, hey, I'm an expert on having a bad idea that I thought was from God. I mean, if you were here with us in our Mark series, we just finished Mark where Peter's walking with Jesus and he constantly thinks, okay, I know what Jesus wants me to do. I've been with him for three years now. So they're coming to arrest him. I'm going to cut this guy's ear off. And Jesus is like, bro, what's wrong with you? He heals the guy's ear. He's like, take a nap, sit down, calm down. That's not at all what I wanted. I didn't come to bring the sword. I came to save this dude. See, Peter constantly had this experience of thinking he knew what God wanted him to do. And when he acted on it, God was like, Peter, Peter, Peter. And I, th I think this is why he loved the Bible so much. Because he says, what you have here, it's fully confirmed. This is like having Jesus at your side and being like, Jesus, I think you're saying this. Can you confirm that? Yes, okay, I won't cut the guy's ear off. But I'll also probably not deny that I know you. I, I see that I was wrong on both accounts there. Thank you for clearing that one up for me. He says, what you have here is more fully confirmed. And so this is why he loves the Bible because he says this will tether you to the real Jesus and his real will for your life that will lead you into flourishing and a life that you could never lead yourself into. Because without this, what he says is you are going to stray from the path. And this is biblical imagery for destruction. You get off the path, you're going to have some brokenness in your life. You're going to have some pain in your life. And so he says, this thing, it tethers you to the one that keeps you on the path. And this is why he says, I've heard the Father speak from heaven. It's legit. You should be so lucky. But this is better. And, and I've talked to so many people who say, I believe this is God's word. But at the same time, they'll say, I don't want to have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. It's not the Trinity I believe in. Um, and can I just point out, that's not the Trinity Peter believes in either. Uh, if you read this book, he has some incredible things to say about God the Holy Spirit, including the fact that I've been carried by the Spirit in this, these verses. But what people will say is, oh, man, I don't want to have this crusty relationship with God, so I'm not going to let some book dictate what I understand about God. I'm just going to close the book, walk away, and just go to the beach and let Jesus speak to me. And, and I'm not saying Jesus can't speak to you at the beach. Some sweet times of prayer I've had, for me, if I get around water, not that's falling from the sky, but that's inherently on the ground, that's a godly place for me. Um, but I would just tell you, my experience is the same as Peter's, is that this is far better. Um, I have found, so we'll go from Peter's experience to my experience. I'm going to cheat a fifth point here. Um, I have found that this book is alive and active, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 claims that it is. Um, I have found that as I have read this book, the spirit who carried Peter and the authors of the Bible 
to communicate his message speaks to me, reveals my life to me, reveals Jesus to me, meets me here, leads me here, and guides me here. And so I just have to think, the people that say, I, I don't want to be God the Father, Son, and Holy Bible, I'm just like, have you ever honestly read the Bible and asked the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the Bible? Because this is Peter's experience, this is mine, this is so many Christians throughout history. And, 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 and I would just say this, um, I, I want to try to be practical. I, I'll share with you a recent example. It's not the most extreme or exciting, but it's the most recent one. Um, Because if this is new for you, if you're like, what do you mean God speaks to you through the Bible? Um, Let me just give you an example. So I'm reading through the book of 1 Samuel right now. And in the book of 1 Samuel, the people of God do something dumb. And so I'm reading this, I'm like, stupid Israelites, dummies. And, and, And then the prophet Samuel says, far be it from me to sin against the Lord by forgiving, uh, by neglecting to pray for you. And I was reading that being all judgmental with the Israelites. I'm like, thank God I don't do that. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, that's not just true for prophets, that's true for pastors. And, 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 and you've got to hear this, like, um, in my life. This was coming off a week where we just had an awesome prayer meeting here at the church. For Easter, we prayed big prayers. So I'm feeling, straight up, I'm feeling pretty good about my prayer life when I opened the Bible that morning. And the Holy Spirit goes, that's not just for prophets, that's for pastors. I'm like, what do you mean? Of course I know that. I just led the most awesome prayer meeting we've had since I've been here. And then the Holy Spirit began to bring to mind some folks in this church. And he convicted me that I'm not praying for them as I should be. And, and, And the crazy thing is, they were not even on my radar until I opened up the book and God began to speak to me. But when I did... He convicts me, and so then I'm like repenting of sin, praying, because that's what Scripture says. It's a sin to not pray for them, and so I'm praying for them. And then, um, and then I felt the Holy Spirit press further. Hey, that's not just true for pastors, but that's true for parents. And I f- God started talking to me about my prayer life for my kids. And it was convicting. It was challenging but it's leading to life. And that's not the only way God speaks to me. I've, I've had God speak to me. Sitting at a lake, I was called to ministry. I've had these moments in my life, but I've also had these moments where I thought God told me to do this thing over here. In hindsight, I was very wrong. But when God speaks to me here, it has never once failed me yet. It has challenged me, it has been convicting, but it has always led me to life. So that's not just Peter's testimony, that's my testimony, and I would invite you to ask people in your gospel community if maybe they've had the same. If maybe God has more for you in this book that you know. Because according to Peter, if you want to have an adventurous faith, if you want to have a dynamic faith with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the best way to hear from him is through the book he wrote. This is the best way to encounter the living and dynamic and life-changing God in our world today. And I'll be honest with you, that's the big idea. This is the best way to hear from the living God today. The God who could change your life. But I'll be honest with you, I think that's honestly the problem sometimes. 
See, sometimes I think our issues with the Bible are intellectual. And if, if that's the case for you, I hope today's sermon has been helpful for you. I hope all of that nerd stuff on manuscripts maybe helps somebody here. But at the end of the day, what I know is for some people, your issues are intellectual, and maybe those three initial points were helpful. But for others, it's not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. Um, Mark Twain, he, he's famous for saying, um, it ain't the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand. And so I wonder for you, if, if in light of all of this, you're hearing all of this and you're like, yeah, I still don't know. I wonder for you if maybe it's a heart issue. Um, are there things in the Bible that when you read them, you just don't like them? And that's why you don't trust it, is you're like, I don't like this. How am I supposed to trust something that seems so untrue to me? And if that's where you're at, I just want to say, I've been there. Frankly, I think if you were to ask most honest people, if you've spent any serious time reading this book, I think we've all been there where we're like, really, Lord? But here's what it means to be a Christian. And this, this is what I would invite you to consider this morning. To be a Christian is to be someone who believes that Jesus offers me a type of life that I could never get for myself anywhere else. Not only could I not get for myself, no one else could give me the type of flourishing and life that he can bring me. And sometimes the path to flourishing according to Jesus will feel like picking up a cross an execution device, and following him up a hill to die to what we think will lead to flourishing so that we can live into the life that he came to bring. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the reason that we do that, some of you are like, that's crazy to be a Christian. Well, then you're probably hearing me right now. But the reason we do that is even crazier. The reason that we trust Jesus, the reason that we pick up our cross is because Jesus picked up his cross. And on the cross, we see a God who sees us flawed and broken as we are, having all of these bad ideas and sometimes even attaching God's name to it. And he sees us in that mess. And he's crazy about us. He says, I love you. I want you to have life abundantly. And he's so crazy about us that he would come and be nailed to a tree and to suffer and to die in our place for our sin, for all of our foolish ideas that we thought would be good, but ended up hurting other people and ourselves and defaming the name of God in this world. And he did all of that so that he could give us a new and eternal kind of life. And so I'll tell you this. There are still things that I do not understand about God. I promised you real talk in this series. There are still things I do not understand about God, but that's because I'm 34 and he's eternal. And for all I don't understand, here's what I do know without a shadow of a doubt and would bank my entire existence on. He is for me 
He isn't holding out on me. He isn't frustrated at me for the sin in my life because that sin has been paid for. He looks at me and sees his beloved son and he's not keeping anything from me. His heart towards me is kind. I am dead sure about that because the empty tomb last week that we talked about, that's what assures me that's true. And so for all that I don't understand about God, I know he's for me. I know he's not holding out on me. I know his heart toward me is kind. And so if his word ever feels unkind to me, what this is for me, and maybe it is for you, is it is an opportunity to follow Jesus into the truer and fuller life that he came to die to bring to you and me. And I'm not saying I live in perfect awareness of that. Like, gosh, if I believed that all of the time, I literally would never sin. Real talk, I do. I, I do sin. I do not believe that all of the time. But to be a Christian is someone who is imperfectly learning to live out that kind of trust. That kind of life-giving trust and a death-defeating God who is for us no matter what we've done. And so maybe for you, your issue with the Bible, it's a heart issue where you need to talk to Jesus today and say, hey, I want to trust you like that, but real talk right now, Lord, I don't. Would you help me? Would you meet me here? I I promise you, if you would do that today as we turn to respond to this message, you are not going to surprise God. You're not going to hear him say, you believe what? I had no idea. If you come to him this morning and say, this is what I'm having a hard time accepting in your word, but I want to trust you. I believe your heart towards me is kind. I believe, would you help my unbelief? I think you will see him meet you powerfully, not only in this place this morning with this message, but throughout this entire series. Maybe the Bible isn't your thing for you, but I think this is a word for all of us. If we can enter this series honestly and say, God, here's where I'm at. I want to believe what you say but here's where I'm at. Would you help me get to where I can see your word is good because I believe by faith that it is. If you can do that, I think God's going to meet you powerfully in this series. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you've not left us groping around trying to find the path to flourishing. But that you sent your son into the world to show us the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you've not left it to us to try to figure out who Jesus is 2,000 years later, but that you've given us a more fully confirmed record of who he is so that we could have a relationship with you 2,000 years later in this room this morning. Father, thank you that your heart toward us is kind in spite of all the nonsense in our life right now. You are good and gracious and kind, and so in your grace, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit the same spirit that you used to inspire the scriptures, would you send your spirit to illuminate our hearts this morning and help us to believe what is good, right, beautiful, and true that would lead to our flourishing. Primarily, I ask that you would illuminate our understanding to Jesus and his eternal word that he has given us. In your beautiful name I ask, amen.